I'm always reminded every Sunday of when we come together to worship the Lord of how much of a blessing our band is to us as a church. You know that these, these folks are volunteers. They get here early on Sunday morning. They put a lot of, of time in earlier in the week, and uh, they, they just take a lot of time to invest in the corporate worship that we have here uh, on Sunday morning. It doesn't go without labor. It doesn't go without much work. And so, you know, if you have an opportunity and you're out from the heart, just thank them. Thank them for the time they put in. Thank them for the love that they show for this body in, uh, in making sure that songs are on the slides, selected, sung, played for the glory of God and the good of all of us as we get to worship every Sunday together. So uh, today, we are continuing to work through the Sermon on the Mount, and we have been on this topic of prayer for several weeks now. That's <laughs> either way, either way. So we've been on this topic of prayer, and uh, it's probably best to begin asking this morning, as, we, as we've been now for a few weeks looking at this, this very familiar topic, probably to, to most Christians, this would be one of the top topics you would say would, would, you would associate with Christianity would be prayer. <clears throat> so it's probably best to begin by asking the question, how has this affected your prayer life just so far? Just as we do a little bit of an inventory before we go any further, how has this time talking about prayer as we've looked at it in the Sermon on the Mount, how has it affected your prayer life? Maybe I could ask the question this way. Have you allowed the truth of God's word to infuse life into your praying? Have there been fresh discoveries in the last few weeks as you've gone to God in prayer? Has there been fresh vigor energy, uh, intensity of interest as you have come to God as Father and prayed. So one of the things I want to encourage us not to do is to just think about prayer or just talk about prayer. Uh, Because sometimes in the Christian life, it's very easy to just become very heady about everything. And so we, we like to talk about prayer as this sort of abstract concept Uh, Much like any other theological point, it's this abstract concept that we discuss in gospel community group. Yeah, you know, I never never thought about that with prayer. I never thought about prayer in those terms. I never thought about that element of prayer. And so we talk about it, we discuss it, we think about it, but we don't actually pray. There's there's no result that, that actually puts boots on the ground in our praying. It's just all in our head. It's all in our speech. And then when we move past the Lord's Prayer and we begin to go into other topics, it is a distant, fading memory. And that's frequently, if we think about it, if we're honest, that's frequently how we engage with God's Word. We have God's Word before us every day, every Sunday. We, we hear it, and we may have some some instantaneous delight in it. We may have some instantaneous motivation to live it, and then it begins to fizzle, it begins to fade. We go on to other considerations, and we leave it behind. So my prayer for us is that we won't just talk about it or think about it now, but that we really will pray. And not just pray, but that we will pray like this, as Jesus said in Matthew 6, 9, that we will pray in the manner according to the model, according to the guide, hanging our prayers on the skeleton that Jesus gave us in what we traditionally have called the Lord's Prayer in 
Matthew 6. So go ahead and go there in your Bibles with me, if you will. Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. That's where we get the opening of the Lord's Prayer. Pray then like this. And I hope that two things have happened for each of us. So as we think about, we've been engaging with prayer. I hope that two things have happened for every single person I'm looking at this morning. And for myself. And for anyone who's been, who maybe is not here this morning, but they've been here for part, they've been listening on the podcasts, listening to the podcasts. I hope that two things have happened to each of us. First, that we've truly asked some hard questions of ourselves about prayer. And what I mean by that is that as we've engaged with this, one of the most significant passages in all of the Bible about prayer, that we have really, truly, genuinely examined ourselves, that that's happened. You know, that's a big part of preaching. That's a big part of hearing preaching and and reading the Bible is that we should always be examining ourselves in our brokenness and imperfection and always be striving to walk with God more faithfully, striving that the character of Christ would be formed within us. So I think it's fitting to ask the question, is there pretentious prayer? As we've gone through these last several weeks, we've, we've looked at these scribes and Pharisees who've gone out in public and they focused very much on how other people saw them while they were praying, looked at them and said, man, that's a really righteous person. That's a, a really holy person. Are there pretentious prayers in our lives? We, one of the ways that we will know this is if we're praying in a group, and this has happened to me many times, I'm sure it's happened to you as well, we're praying in a group and we finish our prayer and immediately the Holy Spirit says, you didn't pray. You didn't pray. You were talking to these people. You weren't talking to me, the living God. You were performing. You were speaking words to people horizontally rather than talking to me, your God. And so are there pretentious prayers? Let's address that. Examine ourselves on that. Are there mindless prayers where we just approach God with a, with, with a lack of thought? We're just going to God and we're saying all sorts of things. We're rambling on. We're not saying anything. Our minds are really thinking about something else. And our tongues are just going. And our lips are just going. Words are just flying up into the air. It's just vapor. It's not prayer. So I hope that we will examine ourselves on this front as well. Mindless prayers. Are there fatherless prayers? Think about that. The Lord's Prayer begins, our Father in heaven. Are there fatherless prayers? What do I mean there? I mean that these are prayers in which we approach God as some kind of maybe Santa Claus figure or tyrant. Not as Abba, Father. Have we been praying to God not in this intimacy not in this kind of readiness of approach, not in this kind of familial love and gentleness and the tenderness of his ear towards us. Have we been praying fatherless prayers, praying to God as a, as a vague entity, oh God, in this very general way, or have we been praying to our Abba, our Father? Fatherless prayers. What about Christless prayers? As we came to the Lord's Prayer, we were reminded of those words of Jesus that you pray in my name, Jesus says. Pray in my name. And one of the ways that we do this is to pray our Father in heaven. In fact, when we pray our Father in heaven from the heart, we are praying in Jesus' name. 
And here's what I mean by that. To even call God Father from the heart is to be cognizant of the fact that only in the Son can we call Him Father. So prayers that forget Jesus, prayers that just go to God in these general terms, even if it's a a very intimate fatherly connection between us and God, we are not mindful of the atonement of Jesus. We have no Christology in our prayer. We have no understanding of who Jesus is in his person and his work, his death and his resurrection, that he alone is the unique son of God. So we are challenged to ask ourselves, are we praying Christless prayers? Are we praying self-centered prayers? We start the Lord's Prayer with our Father, which reminds us, as we've said before, that all of our prayers should be interlaced with intercession, that every prayer we pray, we are bringing with us the people of God. We're always mindful of our brother, our sister in Christ, always coming to God, not just as an individual entity, but as a, a member of a family, upon which God sits as the Father, and then we all, brothers and sisters in Christ. So have we been praying self-centered prayers? And all of this, of course, forces us to ask the question, what about infrequent prayers? You know, how much do we even pray? We know that our prayers are not powerful and efficacious because they are long, although you will find in the history of the church that great men of God who have spent much time in prayer have seen much of the power of God in their lives. God has used them in mighty ways, and God has brought about much fruitfulness in their work. So we know that. But it's not the length of prayers, Jesus tells us, not many words, but it is that we are always talking to the Father. You get the impression with Jesus' life as he goes through in the Gospels that Jesus is always communing with Abba, Father. He's always communing with him. And we get little snippets of this when we see him in the morning. He rises while it is still dark, giving up a little sleep. I heard John Piper in a recent uh, Ask Pastor John uh, segment, he talked about how you know, we should think about sleep. And that Jesus would give up some of his sleep. He'd be up all night ministering to his apostles. He'd be out all day telling everyone about the kingdom of God. Healing people. People were always crowding in on him. But he found time to get up before the day began. Before there were distractions. And he would approach Abba and pray. He would pray all night sometimes. And then go along that next day. Are our prayers infrequent? These are just some of the questions that we've encountered already. There's so many more questions as we go through only on the second petition today. But these are questions that we've already encountered. And and hear me on this. Hear me on this. People of God, these are questions that should be heavy on us as we think about prayer. They They should tug at our hearts. They should call out to us, be perfect as I am perfect. As God says, be holy as I am holy. Know me, the living God. Know me, your Father. These questions should force us to do business with the Lord, to pray even today that God would change our hearts, that God would use this passage of Scripture to bring revival within every single soul. So that's one. I said I hope that two things have happened in each of us so far. That's one thing, is that we've examined ourselves. But another thing, and this is equally important, equally important, that our weaknesses and failures in prayer are overshadowed by the all-consuming 
never failing, unconditional love of Abba. So here's the thing. No one can come to the Lord's Prayer without being severely convicted. And I would even say, if you come to the Lord's Prayer and you're not convicted, that's a problem, a big problem. Because all of us should realize how frail we are in prayer. All of us should realize how weak we are, how unfaithful we are in prayer. But we're not meant to just dwell there. We're not meant to just, we are meant to to spend time there, to confess our sins. But it's not about just dwelling there and feeling weighted down and mired down. We are to pursue greater praying. But it's in light of this very first address. So you're here this morning, you've been examining yourself, you feel weighty, you feel like, man, I don't pray, I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do this, I don't do that. Immediately, as you begin to pray freshly, what's the word you say? Father. And that should remind you immediately that towering over all of your weakness and frailty and sinfulness and disobedience and prayer is the love and care of this Abba, this Father. So I pray that at least, at least those two things have happened in every single one of us. Self-examination and a renewed confidence in the fatherhood of God despite our sin. So we've been revolving our discussion of prayer around this idea of God as intimate father. That's been at the center. Why? Why do we keep talking about God as father? Well, that's what Jesus keeps talking about. At every stage, as we look at what Jesus has to say in this passage about prayer, we see the word Father pop up. So Matthew 6, 6. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 8. Do not be like them. That is the pagan unbelievers who heap up empty words when they come to their deities. Don't be like them, Jesus says. Why? Because your father knows what you need before you ask him. Then, in chapter 6, verse 9, we get the opening address, our father in heaven. What's that tell us? That tells us that you should never think about prayer without thinking about father. Never. So whatever notions that you've had about prayer up to this point, take that, put that on a wall, and at the very center of that, put the word father. Because that is the center of any theology of prayer. Jesus has made that abundantly clear to us even so far as we've gone through entering into the Sermon on the Mount. So at the center of Jesus' teaching on prayer is this truth that God is Father of his disciples. He is our Abba. And so far we've looked at approaching Abba and addressing Abba. Last week we started looking at adoring Abba. This is the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer. And this is the main thing that I've wanted to get across so far. Prayer begins with a focus on God. That sounds intuitive. Yeah, amen. You know, yesterday in our membership class, we, one of the things we talk about is our, on, our, on our vision statement, we are building on exposition. And I talk about how the Bible must be the foundation. And there's not a a right-believing Christian, an evangelical Christian in the world who would hear the words, I imagine, the Bible must be the foundation, and not say, of course, amen. 
But in practice, unfortunately, it is not always the case in churches and in individual Christian lives that the Bible is the foundation. And the same is true of praying to God. It is unfortunately not always the case that God is the focus of our prayers. We would all, in theory, say that's right. It's kind of like Sunday school. The answer is Jesus. What should be the focus of our prayers? God. That is just obvious. But many of us do not, and frequently all of us, do not focus our prayers on God. After addressing him as our Father in heaven, we move, notice in the prayer, verse 9, our Father in heaven, we move from this address immediately, not to ourselves, our needs and problems. This is a main point I've tried to get across. You don't move from our Father in heaven immediately to your needs and your problems, but to God's glory. Immediately to God's glory. His name, hallowed be your name. His kingdom, your kingdom come. His will, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The dominating word of the first three petitions is the word your. The dominating word of the second set of petitions is the word us. So we know that Jesus is very consciously laying out for us, consider God, consider his priorities, consider his purposes, consider his glory, his honor first. Bury yourself there and then out of that grows the tree of self-concern. Only out of that soil. God, focus on God, Jesus is telling us. Another way of saying this is that we adore Abba before we ask Abba. So we we are adoring before we are asking. And I want to submit to you that this prayer, obviously it's coming from Jesus, but this prayer is truly Christian in this sense. Two major foundational truths of the Christian faith are found even in the setup of these prayers. And here are the two that I'm referring to. I'll just read them to you from Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.15, we no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who for our sake died and was raised. So think about it this way. If you, you know, we, we all have these ideas of, of what it means to be a Christian, kind of a, these Basic Christianity, mere Christianity, you C.S. Lewis's title. Basic Christianity, what goes into, what are the foundation stones? If you were to define it and kind of lay it out, so everything kind of builds on these. These are foundations of the Christian life, foundations of Christianity. Certainly this is one. We no longer live for ourselves. And so... The pattern of prayer that Jesus gives us communicates that to us. We start with God, we camp out there. Only from there do we flow out to other things. A second foundational truth that we find is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. We've all said this in many different contexts. I mean, not all of us, but many of us have. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What is the chief end of man? to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The glory of God. So we no longer live for ourselves and we live for God's glory and then we see the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer communicates both of those foundational Christian truths. 
So in that sense, the Lord's Prayer is truly Christian. It's truly Christian. Let me ask you to think about this. Do you recognize that your prayers follow your heart and your life? One of the things that our praying does for us is it indicates lots of things about our hearts. It tells us what we love most. It tells us what we value most. So let me ask you this question. Reflecting back on your prayers recently, are there some themes that you just constantly keep hitting? Maybe you do, as I've said, you go straight from our Father in heaven, boom, me, 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 give me, give me, give me, as we talked about last, last week. Maybe that's what's ha- what happens in prayer for you. So think about it. What are those things that you're always going to God? Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. And that's a really good indication of what our idols are. That's a really good indication of what we love more than God or what we tend to exalt above God. Our prayers follow our hearts. Like everything else, Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. What comes out of the mouth horizontally toward other people comes out of the heart. And the same is true of prayer. What comes out of the mouth and is directed vertically towards God also comes from the heart. So let's go to our passage for today. Those are just some kind of preliminary things to consider as we've been going through prayer so far. But let's go to our passage. We are in Matthew 6, the third part of verse 9 all the way through verse 10. And let's read this. So we've looked at so far, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And today we consider this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're going to spend our time looking at today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his grace to listen and to speak clearly on my part, and that he will just illuminate his word for all of us, that we will grow, genuinely grow as a result of our time here today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are exalted in the prayers and praises and responding of your people. You are a holy God, a holy Father. We worship you as holy, and we desire that that everything we do here today glorifies you, that everything we're about in this building this morning, that everything we will be about in our gospel community groups this week will be the the exaltation of your great name, your attributes, your, your holiness, your majesty, your glory. And we pray that you will bring about your purposes, that you will bring about the purposes that you have determined from the foundation of the world as we recognize that you are a sovereign God, that you have predetermined things before the world began, that Adam and Eve sinning in the garden did not take you off guard. Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve did not take you off guard. Satan's fall from heaven did not take you off guard. And all the things that we see around us that, that you despise, the wickedness and sinfulness and vileness of this world that we read about and that we see in our own hearts, unfortunately, Father, none of it takes you by surprise. 
We pray that in Christ you will bring about your kingdom purposes, that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask, God, that today you would give us what we need from your word. We know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, Father, we pray today that we will feed on your word and that we will live by it. Help us, Father, we ask, and we pray that you will forgive us for our sins. We know that this past week that we have sinned against you. This very day we have sinned against you in the way that we have treated our neighbor, in the way that we have worshipped idols rather than you, in the way that we have failed to delight in you as our Father and to trust in your gospel. So, Father, would you forgive us and would you protect us from continuing down the road of sin? Would you halt all of that and turn us towards you, turn us towards your face and protect us from the evil one as he tempts us to pursue idols and to hate our neighbor rather than love him. We pray that you will work in us by your Holy Spirit, that you will protect us from Satan and his schemes. We ask that you'll protect our service this morning, protect every mind, protect every word. We pray that what's done here today will glorify you and be done in the name of your son. We pray this all in his name. Amen. So today is part two, as you see up there, part two of a sermon entitled Adoring Abba. Last week, we looked at uh, his attributes acknowledged as we considered the petition, hallowed be your name, that what we have there is the acknowledgement all over the world of God's holy attributes, that, that he is, that God is distinct, he is set apart, that he would be treated as such. And today we're going to look at these last two, his reign realized and his purposes perfected. So let's go to the second one, his reign realized. So what are we praying to our Father when we say to him, your kingdom come? What are we saying? These aren't just words. You know, one of the, two of the words, it's funny to me, the two words that we're looking at today are probably two of the most casually said words in all of Christianity. Kingdom, 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 kingdom. Kingdom work. Doing it for the kingdom. Advancing the kingdom. These are, you know, we think about if we were to make a list of Christian cliches, Christian verbiage, things that we hear all the time, sometimes mindlessly said, we hear the kingdom mentioned all the time. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. And another thing we constantly hear is God's will. God's will, God's will. These are two ideas that we tend to be so familiar with that they don't really sink in. And so it would be easy to go to God in prayer and to pray about his kingdom and to pray about his will and really not be saying anything at all, just repeating Christian cliche. So we need to ask the question, what are we, what are we saying? What are we praying to God when we say, your kingdom come? Well, we can answer this question generally and specifically, and in the most general terms, we are praying that God's reign or his rule would be realized, as we have here with the point, the reign realized. Last week, we looked at the first petition, hallowed be your name, and we saw this, that, that God's name is already hallowed. God is already holy. His name is already holy. His name is already set apart. And so what we talked about is that we are asking God, we are requesting of God that his name be treated as holy. So we know 
All around us, we can see people, and even in our own hearts, instances where God's name is not hallowed on the earth. We see this everywhere. Where God and his, his holy name and his holy characteristics, his holy attributes, are treated as dirt, not hallowed. And so we know that he is holy, but his name is not treated as holy everywhere we look. And the same is true of God's kingdom. Just as God is, in fact, already holy, we know that God does, in fact, already reign as king. Nobody needs to enthrone God. In fact, I was in a church one time, and rightfully so, the music leader, we were doing a big, a big they were doing a big, um, I guess you call it a cantata. They were a number of songs kind of stacked up. And uh, he came up to me. He was really troubled by this language of, and we crown him in a song, a particular song. I won't, I won't kind of get into the specifics of the song, but the language, part of the language of the song was we crown him. Nobody crowns God king. He's king, period. He's always been king. He's been king since he said, let there be light. Since he made the first thing, he was king over it. Eternally, God existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in, in a community of love. And then he began to create in everything which he created. He was over it as king, intrinsically so. No one crowns God king of anything. He is king, just as he is holy. But we know everywhere we look that his kingship, is not realized in this rebellious, God-hating world. Everywhere we look, even when we look in the mirror, we see rebellion, rebellion, rebellion against the sovereign king. Everywhere we look. He's been king from the beginning. He has enthroned his son, his anointed one, his Christ, his king, Psalm 2, He's the king. God has given him kingship. He has raised his son from the dead. He has brought him up into heaven. He has sat him down at his right hand. He has crowned him king and poured out his spirit as an expression of the fact that he's done so. So we know this is true. Yet many do not bow the knee to Christ at all. Many persecute those who bear the name of Christ. Everywhere in the world we see such persecution, such hatred of God's king. So that's what we're praying in general. We're praying that God's reign would be realized. But what specifically are we praying for when we say your kingdom come? That's in general. We recognize God and his kingdom. But what are we saying specifically when we say these words to God? And I think there are three things basically that we're praying you can write these down if you'd like. One, conversion. Two, character. And three, consummation. I think that we have to deal with each of these as we're coming to God in prayer. We're saying these words to God. Ultimately, that's what we are asking God to do. That's what we are petitioning him for. So first, conversion. We are praying that God will establish his reign in the lives of individual Rebel sinners. Do you know that that's what they need? You know, there are a lot of things that we tend to pile up around people to kind of make them better. 
And it is true because of God's common grace that there are things that people, unbelievers, can do to make their lives more flourishing. And so even if we're not able to reach a person's soul, we would desire that anyone have a more flourishing life in accordance with God's creation, in accordance with the way he made people, in accordance with humanness. That humanness, the nature of what it means to be a human, that that would be reflected, that the image of God would be realized in that way, insofar as it can be, even by those who are unbelievers. But we must realize that that person is still a rebel sinner. That person is still rebellious against his or her creator. And no amount of help, no amount of techniques, no amount of worldly wisdom is going to take them out of the category of being rebel to not being that. Nothing. Only God, only God can do that. Only God can do that. We don't save anybody. We don't bring anybody from being that to something else. Only God can do that. And so we pray. We pray to God to do that very thing. In other words, we are praying that in the lives of unsaved people, there will be a turning and a transferring. We see a turning as they repent and believe. Mark 1.15, Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So what does that mean? Repent and believe the gospel. That is what we should do. That is the response of the kingdom, to repent and believe in the gospel. Where the kingdom of God comes, repentance and belief come. I can say it this way. Where the kingdom of God comes, there is a turning away from sin, turning towards God in repentance, and a turning towards God in faith, believing that he is, in fact, God and that he has demonstrated his grace in Jesus Christ. As we saw from Titus, believing that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. So we turn towards God. So there's a turning, and in this turning, there will be a transferring. I love this beautiful language, language from Colossians 1.13. It says this, he has delivered us, he has delivered us as Christians, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom, to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So we pray for this transfer in the lives of people, that they are actually unbelieving people are rebels against God. They're at enmity with God. It's as though they stand outside of the walls of God's holy city and they bombard it day and night. They are, in fact, enemy rebels against the king. Read of Absalom in the Old Testament and how he tried to take David's kingdom away from him. That is the kind of rebellion that we see in those who do not know God. And there will be a transfer from that domain of darkness, that domain of rebellion, to the kingdom of his beloved son. And that is when a person is converted that is when a person becomes a Christian. In other words, when sin is renounced, when Christ is trusted in for redemption, when sins are forgiven, the reign of God is realized in a person's life. The kingdom of God comes. Your kingdom come, we pray. 
And so we are praying that sinners would turn away from sin towards God, be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what we're saying to God when we pray this prayer. Secondly, well, before I go on to the next one, which is character, before I go on to that, I just want to ask a few questions. Where do you stand? In the domain of darkness or in the kingdom of his beloved son? You know, the amazing thing about all of this that we're preaching today, we're talking about today, is that it all is wrapped up in this one idea, the good news. You're not here today to hear bad news. You're here today to hear good news. And the good news always includes some very, very bad news. Or it wouldn't be that good. Because it's meant to overcome the bad. So you got to hear the bad. This is all bad news for you if you don't know Jesus. This is, this is not just bad news. That's such an understatement. There is no statement. This is horrific news. This is crisis for you. And if you don't feel the weight of that, hear the way that, you, that a person is described apart from Christ. In darkness... The good news is this, that God extends to you an offer. He says, come to me, come to me and be forgiven of your sins and I will transfer you. Jesus says, not one person who comes to me, I will turn away. Not one person. So if you hear these words this morning, the word of God goes out and you're hearing these words this morning, you're not a Christian. Hear these words and say, Lord, help my unbelief. Cry out to God. Turn from sin. Trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all of your sins. He covers all your sins, past, present, and future. He makes you right in the sight of God. Amen. You can do that. You can turn away from that in the power of God's grace, but only by his grace. As you hear the word and he moves in your heart, you turn from sin and you turn to God. So don't hear this word of the kingdom today and miss the kingdom. Let the kingdom pass you by. Turn to God in faith today. Trust him. If through this service you have questions and you begin to think much more about this, we're gonna have some people over here at this door at the end of the service with whom you can talk and you can go there and you can tell them, look, God's working on my heart. I need to know more. I need to understand more. Talk to me. Pray with me. I need Christ. I, I'm, I'm lost. I know I'm not a Christian. I'm not really a Christian. And maybe everybody in this room thinks you're a Christian. Don't just not come to God and enter into his kingdom of light because you're embarrassed that people might think strangely of you. Oh, I thought he was a Christian. Don't let shame keep you from hearing the call of the kingdom. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be forgiven of all your sins. That's the call of the kingdom. For the Christian, we hear these words, your kingdom come. And the question that we get is, do you pray missionally? In other words, do we pray for people's salvation? You know, I was convicted of this quite a bit thinking about it because, you know, sometimes 
we, in our understanding of Reformed theology, we can sort of think, well, God's got that covered. It may be a passing little, little comment here and there about someone and their salvation. But the model that we have in the scriptures is that we are to pray earnestly, fervently, repeatedly for conversion. And here's the amazing thing about God's sovereignty is God's sovereignty is never detached from human responsibility and the mystery of the scriptures. And so what we know from scripture is that God accomplishes his purposes through human beings, meaning that God's ordained means is through your prayers. His ordained means of bringing salvation to a person is through answering your specific prayers for that person to be saved. So maybe this morning you're growing a little cold in your prayers for unsaved people, people you love, people you know, people you walk past every day. You're just kind of giving up a little bit. Don't. Pray your kingdom come. Pray for the conversion of sinners, rebels, one suggestion, one suggestion, I think, for doing this in a big way is to get the book Operation World. I don't know if some of you have heard of that book or maybe you've, uh, you've read it before, but there's also a, a smaller version. It's Pray for the World. I'm not exactly sure, but it's a smaller version of that book, which is a little more manageable. It's not so huge. I mean, when you pull that out with your kids and family worship or family devotions, it might not be so intimidating to them. We're going to read that, uh, but go to various countries and begin to pray for those people. Pray for the unreached people groups of the world. Pray that God would send his people there. That God would send you there if he so wills it. This is to pray your kingdom come. Secondly, we pray for character. We pray that God's reign would be increasingly realized in the character of his people. Not that unsaved rebel sinners become uh, more moral that's not it, but that Christian people who have the Spirit of God in them, that we become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We have already had much discussion about the character of Christ that should be increasingly found in us, especially in the Beatitudes. We are to be poor in spirit, to mourn over sin, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers, those who endure persecution for the sake of Christ. This is who we are to be. Our kids are learning this now. Joanna has, had determined to go through the Beatitudes, which is a great idea with our kids in Gospel Community Group Junior, GC Junior. And they've been coming along every Wednesday night for the months of June and July, and they're learning the Beatitudes these are the character traits of Christians. These are the characteristics of those who are in the kingdom. And so what are we praying for? We're praying that these characteristics become more pronounced. They become more accentuated. They become more real, practically so, in the lives of kingdom citizens. One of the verses that I really like, it's just so clear and concise, there's so much packed in it, is Romans 14, 17. Paul describes the character in that little verse, Romans 14, 17. He describes the character of kingdom living. This is what he says. The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And in fact, it's interesting because it's, in it's in a passage where he's talking about uh, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. 
So he's dealing in Romans 14 with Christians who are kind of debating, you know, can I eat these foods and drink this, drink this drink? I'm not sure, you know, consciences are involved. This person thinks it's wrong. That person thinks it's okay. And you have all this sort of disagreement within, within the body of Christ. And Paul gives them instructions, but in a very passing way. And so many of Paul's little passing parenthetical comments are so rich in biblical truth. But he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So that is the substance of the kingdom. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We already know this idea of joy is present because what are the Beatitudes? They are Beatitudes, blessed. Blessed are those who, blessed are those who. So to be in the kingdom is to be blessed. It is to have the delight in God. It is to be truly, truly happy. So, a lot of joy in your life. Peace in God, peace with your neighbor. Desire for holiness of life. This is what it means for the kingdom to come in the life of a Christian. More and more and more and more and more and more until we die. And we go and be with God. And notice at the end of this verse, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we're not talking about just sort of a, a way of life or you've, you've taken on a new mindset. You know, I've met people over the years who have uh, kind of walked away from their, maybe they got stuck down in a career that made them work. And I've met two or three people come to mind, as I said, that, that have gotten so stuck down in their career, they became a workaholic or whatever it is. And then they just walked away from all of that, you know, bought some kind of cottage or shack or something, you know, and, and just sort of simplified life, boiled it down to almost nothing and really just sort of had a new lease on life. Kind of living this free, peaceful, delightful life. That's rubbish. It's not true. Because sin is in the heart. It's in the heart. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit of God is the only kind of new lease on life that is meaningful in any way. So third, and most importantly, we are praying for the return of God's son. So we're, we're praying for conversion. We're praying for Christian character. But we're also praying, most importantly, for the consummation of all things. We're praying for the return when God's kingdom will come in all of its fullness. It will be fully realized perfectly here on earth. There will not be in any nook or cranny a rebel sinner. Rebel sinners will be found out and they will be cast away. There will no longer be sinners on the earth. They will be under the earth in hell. That is what God will do on that day. And for those of us who know him, by grace, we will reign with him. This is the consummation. This is what we are praying for. And you think, well, that sounds kind of harsh, praying that rebel sinners be in hell. But here's the thing. We, see, we think this all the time when we see tragedies. It's amazing how people think about hell in, in, in the wrong way. 
We have people that we see. We look online, we look at the news, we hear of things going on in people's lives. We hear of these atrocious acts of murder. read a story recently of uh, a young man who killed four other young men and, and other things that we hear like that. In other countries, things that are going on, the genocide, the killing of children, and other things. And we all intuitively know that God's justice demands death, the death of that person. We all say that, we think that, we know that, except it goes a bit further. God's justice to vindicate his holiness and glory is upon every sinner, not just those who murder in deed, but those who murder in the heart. Not just those who commit adultery in deed, as we've learned, but those who lust in the heart. One day, there won't be any lust. One day, There won't be any anger. One day, there won't be any war. There won't be any sadness or loneliness. There will be only perfection. And that's what we're praying for. Your kingdom come. Roughly 500 years before Christ, the prophet Daniel spoke and wrote about a future kingdom with these words. And in the days of those kings, a list of kings throughout time, The God of heaven, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never, ever be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. That's what we're praying for when we say, your kingdom come, Abba. As Jesus preached in Matthew 4, 17, the kingdom of God is at hand. It has already been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. So what are we praying when we pray, your kingdom come? We are praying the same thing that we read at the end of the New Testament, Revelation 22, 20. What are those words? Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We are to pray that. Come, set up your kingdom. Root out sin from this wicked heart of mine. Root out sin from all wicked hearts. Make everyone to submit to your kingship. May your kingdom come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That's what we pray. And when we rightly understand the coming of God's kingdom, we know that where the kingdom comes, The will of God is done. And that brings us to our final point this morning, which is very closely attached to what we've already looked at. We pray, hallowed be your name. We pray your kingdom come. And we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is not hard to understand what is meant when it says that God's will is done in heaven. That's obvious. We tend to think there of the angels of God. We know that when we get a glimpse into heaven, as Isaiah had, that we see the praise of God going on constantly. God's will is perfectly done in heaven. And in fact, those who have passed away, who have known Jesus, are in heaven right now perfectly worshiping God, except for one thing. Their bodies aren't with them. Their bodies are here. And one day... 
when heaven comes to earth in the new heavens and new earth, when all is consummated, those bodies will be raised up and reunited with those souls. But in heaven, there is perfect praise. The souls of those who've gone before us who know God and the angels of heaven praise God continually. But on earth, it is not so. On earth, we see self-will, we see rebellion, and we see the domain of darkness. And this is where we see how the first three petitions all kind of hang together. Where God's name is hallowed, there will be the kingdom. And where God's kingdom comes, where his reign is realized or established, there, and only there, is his will done. He reigns supreme as king, and underneath his kingship is the perfect following of his perfect will. So when we pray, your will be done, we are simply reiterating and expanding what we've prayed already. That God's name be hallowed, that the knowledge of who God is, be, that he be set apart in that way all over the world. That God's kingdom come as we've just prayed. So I think here's an application for us as we think about this. And as we've said many, many, many times, this has to be, as we think about your will be done, God-oriented, not man-oriented. So here's what I mean. Maybe you're tempted as you're going through the Lord's Prayer to think, okay, hallowed be your name. That's a God one right there. That goes in the God bucket. There's the God bucket. There's the me bucket. Hallowed be your name goes in the God bucket. Your kingdom come. That sounds very theological. Okay, we're going to put that one in the God bucket. And then before we get to give us this day our daily bread, which would be the me bucket, always in light of God, we get these words, your will be done. And we immediately toss that into the me bucket. It's like your will be done means, God, your will for my life be done. And so that's how we pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And what I want you to see is that hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, sort of reach out into your will be done, which means that you can't be sitting around praying for God's will to be done in some kind of hyper-personalized, individualized way that detaches it from his hallowing, the hallowing of his name and from his kingdom. What I mean is this, get the big picture first before we consume ourselves with our jobs, our relationships our finances, and so forth. We have all these prayers to God. God, what is your will? What is your will for this? What is your will for that? What is your will for that? And God wants us to pray about these things. We bring everything to him. We pray for his will. We pray for wisdom. But to pray for his will in this myopic, narrow, individualized way is to miss the God-focusedness of all that we've been saying. It's to skip too quickly to the me bucket before we've considered all of God's glorious purposes in the world. And once we've done that, the me bucket really kind of gets dumped over into the God bucket. There really isn't a me bucket because we don't live for ourselves anymore, as we've already seen. Jesus shows us what it means to pray this prayer. Matthew 26, 39, and going a little farther in the Garden of Gethsemane, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, what did Jesus say to the Father at that moment of intense temptation? Can you even fathom what Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane as he is preparing to suffer for sinners on the cross? Can you even fathom the, every facet of suffering? He knows what they're going to do to his body 
He knows what it's going to feel like. But even more, he's going to be separated from Abba. He's going to be forsaken. He's going to bear the sin. When God looked at Jesus on the cross, he saw the most vile, wicked, murderous, lustful, God-hating sinner he had ever seen. Christ became sin for us. And when Jesus was in the garden, he knew that. And he cried out to God, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus had said earlier in John 4, my food My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's my feast. That's why I breathe. That's why I live. I'm about my father's business. Even at 12 years old, he's in his father's house. Everything about Jesus's life was the father's purposes. This is what it means to be like Christ. This is what it means to have his character flowing through us. It is to embrace the difficult and trust God's purposes. Maybe right now there's lots of difficulty going on. You know that you're walking with God. You're doing what God has called you to, but it's hard. It's difficult. Remember the Lord Jesus. Remember whose you are. This is what it means to pray your will be done. It is to relinquish all rights and desires. Jesus said, of course, this is not something he in his humanity wanted to endure although we know that Jesus gave his life willingly. But he relinquished all his rights and desires to the Father's purposes because he knew they were good. It is to be hungry to please God no matter what. No matter what. No matter what. This life's a vapor. It's short. It's a breath. It'll be gone in a moment. It is to say no matter what the cost, no matter what the pain, I am going to do God's will. As we finish this morning, I just want to ask two questions. How well do you know God's will. I want you to see that the, your answer to that question will be dependent upon your understanding of Scripture. I'll say that again. How well do you know God's will? Your answer to that question will be dependent on how much you understand and know God's word, because God's will has already been given to us as Christians in his word. Neglect of the word of God is to inherently neglect the will of God. So if you're sitting around asking right now for God's will about this or that, stop and get in the word of God. And feed and feed and feed and there God will reveal himself to you. He will give you wisdom for all of life. And ask this final question. How worldly are we? How much do we love our things? How much do we love our entertainment? How much do we let the world's laughter and entertainment infuse itself deep into our lives? Because it's fine. I'm being relevant. Contextualized. This is okay. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Where do you find the will of God? When we are in the word of God and when we are not engrossed with the world. We're not enamored by its trinkets, by its pleasures and its satisfactions. In that place, the will of God is discernible. But away from that, 
It's very difficult to discern anything about the will of God. So would we always adore before we ask? Would we seek the glory of God? And only in that context, in the context of the glory of God, would we seek the good of self. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your word. Would it work in us now? As we continue in this worship service, Father, would you bring the fruit that you have designed from before the world began? Would we be obedient to your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.